our message, 2 John. And so if you'll open your scriptures with me to 2 John, we'll be reading the whole chapter to finish up our study in that book. We'll read the whole chapter, but we'll, well, the whole book, but we'll be looking at verses uh, primarily 7 through 11 today. In this passage, we need to remember, just as not all who were descended from Israel belonged to Israel, so not all who were born into the church were really part of the church and Not all who professed faith were really part of the Christian faith. And so now he's shifting his focus from the some who are following the way to the many deceivers who are going out and making trouble within the church and within the world. It's a very sad and heartbreaking shift. But for John, it's a very critical thing to remind and warn the people of God about. Uh, We usually like to think of John as the apostle of love. But in his love for God and love for God's people, he wants to protect them and warn them from the disaster that's standing on the doorstep, potentially to harm them. So we'll come to the second part of this book today. But first, let us read the whole thing. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is a commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such was one as the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but many may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. May the Lord add his blessing the reading of his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the many encouragements and many instructions it has for us as we've come to this book of First John and now Second John and are continuing our study through his epistles. 
We pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts. We've come to a difficult section, a hard section, but there are many of those in your word. Pray that you would help us to find encouragement, encouragement to love, encouragement to grow, encouragement to be faithful to you and to be strong in our faith, that we might indeed persevere to the end and receive a reward in full. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off this section in verse 7, warning us, be warned, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now he started this letter off in verse 4, rejoicing greatly to find that some of the children were walking according to the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now he turns to the other side, he turns to the sorrow. He's gone to the great joy, and we talked about that last week, this joy of seeing some of the people walking in the faith. And that walking in the faith means producing the good works, producing the fruit, showing really that God has transformed their heart and that they're living according to what they've learned in Scripture, that they are living that new life in Christ, that they're glorifying God, that they're earning a reward from God in heaven. And now he turns to his sorrow. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, not just deceivers, but these are those who do not confess the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. They are not just deceivers, but they are antichrists. Remember when John introduced that word back in 1 John, antichrist meant against Christ. They are those who are opposing Christ in his kingdom. They're teaching against him and opposing his work. We saw that back in 2 John Uh, or in 1 John, John saw here that some of these people were godly, but that many were wicked. And that proportion seems struggling to us. We want to see many godly and a few wicked. But remember what Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter by it. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. There are not many. Many are called, but few are chosen. There are not many who are finding the way to heaven. They prefer the easy broad way. The temptations of the world, the flesh and the devil are preferred to God. The problem John is most concerned about here is also what Peter wrote us about. In Second Peter, he said that false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 2 Peter 2, 1-3 These people are being called godless deceivers, false prophets, heretical teachers in Scripture. John has said in John 2, 26, 1 John 2:26, that they're actively trying to deceive us. They want to lead us astray. 
They want to hurt us, and their focus, he's come back to focus on them here, because these people are coming out of the church itself, they're rising up amongst us. Why? Well, we learned about this back in 1 John. You know, they cannot understand the things of God. They do not understand them. They listen to the things of the world. They don't understand God's things. They can't hear them. They won't listen to them. So they replace them with the worldly things. And they believe that their teaching is right. As we've been talking about on Sunday afternoon in Bible study, they honestly, sincerely believe that the stuff of the Bible and God is nonsense and the stuff they're talking about is wise and they want to replace it and they're actively trying to do so and people listen to them. What specifically is in mind here? Well, the greatest and most destructive of these things is that they are not confessing the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, this would include all of the so-called Christological heresies throughout history. Any denying that Jesus was the promised Messiah, any denying that he was truly a man, any denying that he was truly and fully God, any denying that he had these two distinct natures in one person. Remember, some were claiming that he was a created being, not eternally God. Some were claiming that he was never really a man. Some were claiming he was never really God. Some said he was only a prophet. Uh, many, many different heresies came up over the last you know, 2,000 years and continue to come up. Because today they're usually just flavors of things that have happened before. Many try to deny or alter some variation of them, but it robs Christ. It robs Jesus of his ability to save us. If he was not man, he could not be a valid substitute for man. He could not die in our place. If he were only a man, he could not die for the sins of another because it would not be sufficient. He has to be truly, fully God to die for the sins of someone else. His infinite worth is God. Dying for man makes it sufficient for us. And that's why he was raised for us. We see him raised from the dead. We know that he paid the price in full. He had to be both God and man. When they start denying any of that, they're denying our salvation. And when they start teaching that and people are believing that, how then are they going to be saved? This is terrible. And John is very worried about this and very upset about this, as is everyone in Scripture. We know that Jesus was fully and eternally God. John says in the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning, and all the things that were made were made through him, and was, without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, he wasn't made, he made everything. John 1, 1 through 3. And he was man. Continuing on down to verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. As Paul puts it, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those who were under law. So that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
All of this true doctrine of who Christ is is necessary for us to become sons of God. And as John has said back in 1 John, that's what we are, children of God. Imagine the love that God has lavished on us to make us his children. And so his, his two distinct natures are so important and so necessary and so great. And this doctrine is so important that by denying or subverting any part of it, the unmerited salvation that comes through Christ is lost. And so John is very firm here. His language to some seems a bit harsh. But we need to really consider carefully what he has said. And we need to consider what is included, of course, and what is excluded, because sometimes people go too far, right? There's that funny Emo Phillips joke about, you know, they go on and on about, oh, we're brothers, you know, we're both Baptists, we both follow the London Confession, then we follow this, and then, you know, 20 versions down, it's the... There's a small variation in which version of the confession they follow, and it pushes them off the bridge. You know, we joke about that. We shouldn't. You know, we'll, we'll look more on what things is John talking about where we have this great problem, and where are we still brothers, even though we may differ. We'll get to that. So bear with me. To John, though, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is deadly serious matter. It's not a joke. And we'll talk about you know, where we have fellowship and friendship and where we have tolerance and where we have no tolerance. But coming to the next verse, verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but win a full reward. He's warning us, we may lose what we have worked for. Of course, what are we in danger of losing? What have we worked for? What is our reward? Some have mistakenly thought this is talking about salvation. I can say with 100% certainty it's not talking about salvation. Why? Well, salvation, we are told, by grace we have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We may lose what we have worked for in this passage. Well, salvation is not a result of works, so if we can lose what we work for, it can't be salvation, because salvation is not something we worked for, according to Scripture. Second, consider Abraham, as it's explained to us in Romans 4. Abraham's faith is explained by the Holy Spirit through Paul. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So again, we see salvation here was a result of a gift, not for what he had worked for. 
And so John is saying we're losing what we have worked for. Salvation is not something we have worked for. It is a gift, a free gift of God, unmerited. So we're not talking about losing our salvation. What are we losing? What is this reward that he is talking about we can lose here? Well, I think it's the reward for the Christian life. Paul makes this out. All, for all believers, we have this this calling, right? I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 1 and 2. As we've been seeing in our Wednesday Bible study, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Psalm 19, verses 9 to 11. In keeping God's word, there is great reward. We are promised this reward by living a godly life according to God's commands, by being transformed and being renewed into the image of Christ, by living a life for God. We are then rewarded for that life. And I think that is what he is talking about, that promised reward that we work for, is the reward of a righteous life lived in faith in spite of all the trials and in spite of all the hardships that naturally go with living a godly life. And by that I mean, remember what Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Living a godly life in Christ Jesus isn't easy. In fact, Paul says, indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. That's why Jesus warns us not to store up treasure for ourselves in earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where our treasure is there, our heart will be. You know, we have a reward coming. Store that reward in heaven where it's safe. So what's John warning us about then? We have a reward for our godly Christian life. We're to store that treasure in heaven. What are we being careful not to lose our full reward? Not to lose what we have worked for? Well, it will all be tested. We know that. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skillful master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building on it. Let each take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. The idea being that we, we live this Christian life, we do these deeds in the name of God, we live our life in the name of God, we do all things for his glory, God will be the one who judges it. God will test it. And it may be burned up and destroyed. And we may escape as if through fire. In other words, with nothing nothing but left if we fail that test. But how does that relate to our passage? Well, we'll get to that in a few minutes. Another point I want you to consider is, remember that parable of the talents in Matthew 25. It's concerning the kingdom of heaven. It'd be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusts his property to them. To one he gives five talents of money, to another two talents, to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who received five talents at once went and put his money to work and gained five more. A few verses later, the man returns. After a long time, verse 19, the master of the servants came back and settled accounts with them. The one who received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. He says, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and I've made five more. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So his reward is, he will be put over much, given much responsibility. And enter into the joy of his master. That's talking about the kingdom of heaven, it says in the parable. So that's his reward. He received a full reward. Well, John says, you might, you know, we want to be careful lest we don't receive a full reward. Why would he not receive a full reward? Well, he didn't earn as much. He lost some. How would he lose some? Well, behaving foolishly or behaving sinfully or giving it to the enemy in the context of this verse or this passage here in Second John. Helping the enemy with the money of God would be a bad thing and he might not get any reward. He would lose it. We don't want to squander. We don't want to hurt. We don't want to, you know, we're furthering the kingdom of God. We don't want to be hindering the kingdom of God with our action, with our life. And that's the warning here of John. Whenever we really waver in the truth, the truth of God's word I'm talking about, we... Whenever we aid or those who oppose God or oppose God's truth, the comforts we have in Christ, the good our souls have stored up in heaven, the rewards we've earned, we're really casting them aside. We're destroying them. Right? Think of the talents, right? The talents we have piled up, we're, we're, we're ruining them. We're giving them away to the enemy. We're not using them for God. So there's a great danger to our reward. 
And the great danger John is focusing on in this passage today is the danger posed by these false prophets, these false teachers. And we see more about them in verses 9 and following, the danger they pose. Everyone who has left Christ behind are not just godless, they're dangerous. A teacher without the biblical doctrine of Jesus is godless. Now notice I said a teacher. Sometimes the modern church is tempted to think God's warning is exaggerated, but really it isn't. He's very firm in stating this. They've they've run ahead, and the idea carried here in the text, run ahead too far. They've passed beyond. They're no longer abiding in the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And he says when they do that, they no longer have God. And it's quite clear why. Because the doctrines of Christ are the gospel, their salvation. When you don't have that, you don't have God. Without Christ, no one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. God God the Son is clear in stating that. There is no other way. And when they've gone beyond him, they've gone away from him, as these false teachers and false prophets do, they don't know him anymore. And that's an interesting way that he turns the phrase here, the idea being they have this greater knowledge. They've advanced beyond the teachings of the Bible. Beyond what is written, we have new knowledge, greater knowledge, knowledge beyond what is here. We see that in the modern age, in the Enlightenment. You know, oh, we've become enlightened, we have greater knowledge, and we need to adapt the scriptures to what we now know, which is better than was known before. And of course, now with the post-Enlightenment and post-modern thought, we now know that knowledge is not knowledge, and Reality is whatever we want to declare it to be, and truth is whatever we say it is. And no, no, truth is God's word. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth, Jesus says. But these people, they have run beyond the simple teachings of the scriptures into their own knowledge, which is greater in their mind than the knowledge of God and knowledge of scripture. But John says it's rubbish. They have less Christ, left Christ behind, and they have advanced so far that they've left God behind, and in fact, they no longer have anything to do with God or Christ. And we know this is easily, we can easily say this of non-Christian religions, you know, where they don't have Christ at all, we can see they don't have the God the Father. If you don't have Christ, you can't have the Father. Nobody can reach God the Father without Christ. It's also true of all the cults who make a mockery of the biblical Christ. Really of any group that has a gospel that doesn't save, that doesn't have the saving Christ of the Bible. Paul is pretty fierce in defending that there's only one gospel. And when he writes the Galatians about that, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in grace into the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if even we or an angel from heaven will preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before and now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Why? Because it can't save you. There is one gospel that takes you to God, and that is the gospel of Christ Jesus, that he came in the flesh, that he is eternal God, the Son, that he came in the flesh as a man, that he takes your sins on the cross, and that being God in the flesh, the God-man, he was able to pay for your sins in the full by dying for your sins. And without that gospel, there is no salvation. And if they don't have that Christ and that gospel, they don't have God. And in fact, they are an enemy of God by preaching any other way and deceiving people into thinking they can be saved without that. And they hinder the gospel of Christ and they hinder the kingdom of God. Note that he says at the end of verse 9, here in Second John, that the opposite is also true, though. Those who have that true gospel, the full biblical doctrine of Christ, they have the Father, they have the Son, they are our brothers. And we must love them. We can't reject them because they come from a different school, a different background, a different denomination, a different nation, a different race, a different whatever. You know, too often that gets done in the world. It's not acceptable before God. If we do not love our brother, then we do not know God. He's already assured us of that in 1 John. But those who do not have that God, they are not our brother. They are not our friend. They are not our helper. And that's what he's driving us to here. That if they have run beyond the doctrines of God, they've left Christ behind, they've left God behind, they are false prophets, they are false teachers, they are godless. Verse 10, we must not aid them. They are at war against God. We do not want to help them fighting against God. If these religious workers who are coming to you do not bring the true gospel, the two doctrine of Christ, then you cannot receive them. Do not even give them a greeting, he says. I mean, that's pretty strong. Do not assist them in their work because their work is against God. It deceives the people. Remember in 1 John chapter 2.26, he said they are trying to deceive you. This isn't something that it's accidental where they're confused and they're just misleading you unintentionally. They're actively deceiving people. It's not an accident. It's malicious. Jude says it is they who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit in Jude verse 19. It's not God's people who will be blamed for the division, but it is those who hate God, who are teaching against him, against his truth. It is they who are making the division. We are simply acknowledging that they aren't belonging to God, and what they are teaching is hurting the cause of Christ and hurting God's people. And it's God's people 
who are often blamed, but it is not their fault. If they don't teach according to the truth, then they shouldn't be welcomed into God's people's homes and churches. To the teaching and the testimony, if they teach not, speak not according to this world, it is because they have no dawn, Isaiah 8.20. They have not known God, and they don't know his people, and they have no place with them. Verse 11, the most shocking and harsh verse of the passage. If you aid these false preachers, false teachers, false prophets, heretics, you're joining with them. Remember the story we talked about it before, the good king of Judah, Jehoshaphat? He made an alliance with the wicked king Ahab of Israel, the wickedest king in all of the kings of Israel, of all of the kings of God's people. They went to war together. And in the war, the prophet of God made it very clear that God was against Ahab and God was going to strike Ahab down. And Jehoshaphat still fought on Ahab's side. Even though God said he would slay him. We remember what happened. Ahab disguised himself and infamously he was killed by a random arrow shot into the air. God's providence proving that God can do it no matter what you scheme. God's will will be done. And what happens? Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, son of Hananiah, the seer, went out to meet him. And he says to the king, this is the scary part. He says to the king Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Ahab definitely hated the Lord killed his prophets, despised the prophets, threw them in prison, helped his wife slaughter them. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, the prophet said, because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Second Chronicles 19, 1 and 2. Jehoshaphat seemed to think making an alliance with his neighbor Israel was wise. God saw his helping apostate Israel, God's religious enemy, as a serious offense. He saw it as treason, treachery, apostasy. And God's wrath was kindled against Jehoshaphat, who was a good king otherwise. Remember what Jesus said about prophets. Whoever receives me, whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Matthew 10, 40 and 41. Well, point blank, this is John's warning. In the very same way, if you receive or aid these unbelieving, deceitful, godless, heretical teachers who are enemies of God and hindering his kingdom will share in their reward. That's what John is warning us. Don't do it. Don't risk what you have worked for. Don't lose your reward. At this point, we need to come back to 
the issue of what is included and what is excluded in this. Because a lot of times people split and split and split and split and split until there's only one person left. And we're all a church of one. I say that laughing, but it makes me weep, actually. These religious leaders and religious activities are what's in mind. First of all, it's not talking about secular activities. You remember (coughs) talking about immorality. Paul said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviler, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. The principle being, you know, we're in the world as light and salt. But if we won't associate with anybody who's immoral or, or an idolater, we can't associate with the world. So we wouldn't be salt and light. We wouldn't be able to be involved in any politics. We wouldn't be able to go have any business. We wouldn't be able to have a job. We wouldn't be able to do anything. And I think the same would apply to what we're talking about with this. We're not excluding the world. What he's talking about is those who are in the church, teaching in the church, teaching to the church. And so... It's religious activity, particularly religious activity involving Christianity and the gospel. The church, missions, prayer meetings, conferences, all of those kinds of things. The church needs to insist that people be sound. We get into trouble sometimes. And because we are co-belligerents in things like abortion, that we hook up with people who condemn us as heretics and condemn the gospel as sin and have in the past actually killed Christians and still are around the world like the Catholic Church, but we are co-belligerents because of our opposition for things like abortion. We need to be very careful not to join religiously with such a group and finance the Roman Catholic Church for abortion when we'd be joining hands then with people who are literally enemies of God who are killing Christian pastors in other countries. Um, So religious activities, particularly teachers need to be sound in their fundamental beliefs concerning the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh is what John references, the gospel, primarily the gospel and the things affecting the gospel. And we had the fundamentalist modernist controversy where there were things attacked that 
if you believe any of those things the modernists were saying, you couldn't really claim to be a Christian. The inspiration of the Bible, the atonement of Christ, his miracles, his birth, you were denying the basics. Those kinds of things are what's in mind. If you don't believe them, uh, then how can you believe the gospel? Uh, So as a general rule, on those fundamental things, we can't be tolerant with these people because they're teaching against the gospel. Uh, In other areas where it's not really corrupting the gospel, there's room for tolerance and patience. Remember Paul, well, he had very little tolerance with the meat sacrifice to idols teachers, telling them to be quiet and stop teaching that stuff. He had a lot of patience with them. He wasn't kicking them out of the church. He wasn't pronouncing anathemas on them. He was telling them, stop teaching, you're wrong. You know, there was tolerance in that because it wasn't a gospel kind of issue. And so in those things where it's not that gospel-centered, which is not leading people to a false gospel, there's tolerance. In other things, you know, we've heard of churches splitting over colors of which hymn book, which color the carpet to have, and nonsense like that. Stop. Right? That's nonsense. Uh, It's tough for people to draw the distinctions between where we can be telling somebody to stop teaching and be patient with them and where it's there's an anathema because there's a heresy and they can't be allowed to propagate it all teaching. We'll be looking at that again next week because we'll do third John where the opposite problem is occurring where people are being put out of the church who are good and sound, but it's more of a power struggle and personality struggle. The problem here is the tolerance, which is a byword of our day, can lead to people helping those who are rebelling against our God, our King, and can have us unintentionally and unwittingly sharing in the rebellion and sharing in the reward for rebelling against God. And we don't want that. We can lose our reward, John says. And we should be very cautious and very careful. And the church should take the lead, the elders and pastors, in making sure and helping people to make sure that we're being careful to serve God wholly and fully with all of our hearts and rightly. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have the instructions that help us to balance the call to love our brother as ourself, to also love you with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our soul, and reminders to be careful not to love those who hate you and not to help those who are waging war against you so that we can have balance and have understanding and have wisdom to try to discern what path we should take in our life 
that we have enough information in your word to help us make these wise decisions in these areas. Pray that you would give us grace in that, that we can join together in brotherly love with our brothers and sisters around the world and not need to fear helping the enemy to overthrow your kingdom. So we pray for grace and wisdom and and the advancement of your kingdom. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.